Chapter 7 On Refuges of Lies Judgment also will I lay to the line, and righteousness to the plummet. And the hail shall sweep away the refuge of lies, and the waters shall overflow the hiding place. Isaiah 28, 17 All people know that they are sinners against God. They also know that as sinners, they are in danger and are not safe. This is the reason for their anxiety to find some refuge for safety. They know they might find this in the way of forsaking sin and turning to the Lord, but they do not choose to forsake their sins. Therefore, there seems to be no convenient resource for them except to hide themselves under some refuge. Our text speaks of the refuge of lies, yet it is obvious that people who resort to lies for a refuge do not regard those lies as lies but as truth. This fact leads us to raise the primary fundamental question. Do we have any rule or standard that will show what is truth and what is falsehood? People have countless opinions about religion. These cannot all be true. How can we determine which are true and which are not true? We have an infallible test. Salvation, to be real and available, must be salvation from sin. Everything else fails. A religion that does not break the power of sin is a lie. If it does not drive out selfishness and lust, and if it does not bring about love to God and man, joy, peace, and the fruit of the Spirit, it is false and worthless. Any system that fails in this vital respect is a lie. It can be of no use. It is no better than a curse. That which does not bring about in us the spirit of heaven and make us godly, no matter where it comes from or by what deception it is defended, is a lie. And if it is fled to as a refuge, it is a refuge of lies. Also, if it does not bring about prayer, if it does not unify us with God, and if it does not bring us into fellowship and sympathy with Him, it is a lie. If it does not produce a heavenly mind, expel a worldly mind, and detach us from the love of the world, it is a lie. If it does not produce in us the love required in the Scriptures, genuine love and worship of God and also love for His people, indeed of all mankind, if it does not produce all those states of mind that fit the soul for heaven, then it completely fails of its purpose. I must stop here a moment to notice an objection. It is said, The gospel does not in fact do for people all that you claim. It does not make professed Christians heavenly-minded, dead to the world, and full of love, joy, and peace. 
I reply that here is medicine that, applied in the case of a given disease, will certainly cure. This healing power is just what it has and what we claim for it, but it must be properly applied. Someone may buy the medicine, and because it is bitter, may lay it up in his cupboard and never take it. He may provide himself with a counterfeit to take in its stead, or he may take the medicine and then also take something that will instantly counteract its influence in the system. In any such case, the effectiveness of the medicine is not disproved but you have only proved that you have not used it properly and honestly. It is the same with the gospel. You must take it and use it according to directions, or else its failure is not its fault, but yours. It is of no benefit, then, to say that the gospel does not save people from sin. It may indeed be counterfeited, and it may even be rejected but he who receives it to his heart will surely find his heart blessed by it. The gospel does transform people from sin to holiness. It does make people peaceful, holy, and heavenly in life and in death. Millions of such cases can be found throughout the history of the world the lives of such people demonstrate the reality and preciousness of the salvation that the gospel promises. I will now proceed to name some things that lack this decisive characteristic and that do not save the soul from sin. 1. An unsanctifying hope of heaven. Speaking of what God's children will be, John says, we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself, even as he is pure. 1 John 3, 2 and 3. A good hope, then, purifies the heart. However, there are certainly hopes that some people have that fail to purify the heart of those who hold them. Those hopes are lies. They cannot possibly be sound and true. On their very face it stands revealed that they are worthless, a mere refuge of lies. The stronger and more unwavering they are, the more delusive they are. What hope in Christ is that which does not bring the heart to Christ? 2. An old religious experience that is all old is a lie. You might have heard of the man who had his old religious experience all written down and laid away with his deeds of land to keep until his time of need. This being all the evidence he had, he used to refer to it from time to time for his comfort. At last, when the time came for him to die, he felt the need of this record of his religion, and he sent his little daughter to bring it. She returned with only the sad story that the mice had found their way to his drawer and had eaten up the paper. All of the dying man's evidence of piety was gone. He must die in despair. 
he had no other hope but this. On the face of it, such a refuge is only lies. 3. There are two forms of self-righteousness, the legal and the gospel, both of which are refuges of lies. The legal form depends on doing duty, always trying to work out salvation by deeds of law. The gospel form sets itself to get grace by works. People try to get a new heart not by trying to turn from sin, but by praying for it. Imagine that I meet such a man. He says, I tried to become religious. Really? What did you do? I prayed for a new heart. You did, but you did not do what God says you must. You did not repent. You did not bow your heart to God. Therefore, all your efforts come short of what God requires. They fail to save the soul from sin. There is a great deal of this gospel self-righteousness, this throwing off all the responsibility upon God. 4. Universalism is an old refuge of lies. I will tell you about one such situation. Being away from home in my carriage, I overtook a young man who was walking, and I invited him to ride. Almost immediately he told me that he was a universalist, and he came out strongly in defense of his beliefs. I said to him, I am not well and may not live long, and I do not dare to be deceived in this matter. He said that he was sure enough of its truth. He had heard smart men say so, and they had proven it from Scripture. I told him that I have one objection. There is a certain series of facts that I cannot account for if universalism is true. I have known families who were once considered orthodox in their beliefs, who were then upright, moral, and justly respected. I have known these same families to become loose in morals, forsake the house of God, turn to strong drink, and become fearfully wicked. I have observed that along with this change, such families almost always become universalists. This is one set of facts. On the other hand, I have never known a holy, prayerful universalist backslide into orthodoxy. I have never seen anyone forsake his universalism and his morality and degenerate into vice and orthodoxy by one uniform and simultaneous dissent. I have known people reformed from drunkenness and vice who then become orthodox, but I have never known people reformed from wickedness into universalism. It seems to me that thousands of facts reveal a natural sympathy between vice and universalism on the one hand, and between virtue and orthodox Christianity on the other. By this time, he began to feel troubled, and he said, I am afraid I am all wrong. Would you believe it? I am running away from being converted. There is a revival in my place, and I am running away from it. You are, I said, 
and do you think it will hurt you? Will it do you any harm? He looked deeply anxious and replied, I had better go back. My good father and mother looked sad when I left home. I don't believe universalism can save me. Everybody knows it never did save anybody and never can. The same must be said of proper Unitarianism. Some who bear the name of Unitarian are not actual Unitarians, but where you find people who deny depravity, regeneration, and atonement, you will certainly find that their system does not make them heavenly-minded, holy, and humble. You do not need to reason with them to find this out. You only need to take the facts of their history. It is the same with Davisism, the doctrines of Andrew Jackson Davis. Do these doctrines make people holy? Never. I knew a man, once a friend and supporter of gospel reforms, who turned to Andrew Jackson Davis. Did this change make him more holy? No, indeed. He said that this way of belief made him more happy. This is undoubtedly true, for before he was always under conviction of sin and never enjoyed the peace of the gospel. What is the use of reasoning about his universalism? Look at the facts. They alone are sufficient to show its complete falsehood. Universalism never saved anyone from sin. It throws no influence in that direction. This is also true of Mormonism and all similar delusions. We do not need to stop and write books against this and similar lies, for it stands out on the forefront of this system that it saves no one from sin. It is, therefore, a refuge of lies that deceives people into hopes that can never be realized, as is true of every creed and system that does not save people from sin and get them ready for heaven. Now take notice of what God says. He declares, the hail shall sweep away the refuge of lies, and the waters shall overflow the hiding place. No doubt this hail is the symbol of God's displeasure. It is right for God to be displeased with these refuges of lies. He loves truth too well to have the least sympathy with lies. He loves the souls of men too deeply to have any patience with forces so destructive. Therefore, he abhors all these refuges of lies, and he has solemnly declared that the hail will sweep them all away. He declares that the waters will overflow the hiding places. Every refuge that leaves the soul in sin is a hiding place. All religious pretense is such and is nothing better. To put on the mere appearance of devoutness and sanctimony, as if God could be made to believe that you are sincere and could not see through it all, is a flimsy hiding place indeed. This is true of all religious formality, such as going through the forms of worship, being in the church, and being baptized. These things do not help unless their piety is part of their life, and that life 
is the soul of real holiness. A great many people hide in the church. Judas Iscariot crept in there to hide. A minister of the Dutch Reformed Church told me once of a case that is relevant here. A man who had been confirmed in that church was out at sea during a fearful storm. It was a time of intense distress, and many were exceedingly fearful of death, not to say also of that terrible state beyond. When they asked him, How is it that you are so calm? He replied, What have I to fear? I belong to the South Dutch. Many people hide under orthodox creeds. They confidently boast that they are not Unitarians, they are not Mormons, and they are not Universalists. They are orthodox. They think that such religious opinions held so tenaciously must ensure their safety. Others hide under the excuse of a sinful nature. They are naturally unable to do anything. Here they think they have found a sure retreat. They are very willing to do all their duty, but this sinful nature is all against them. And what can they do? This is a refuge of lies. Some try to escape by hiding among those who profess to follow the Christian religion. I am afraid that there are many such people here now. Sadly, your hiding place will fail you in the day of trial. When the hail comes, the storm rolls up fearfully, and the dreadful thunder breaks with an appalling crash, you will try in vain to find the one who professes Christ in order to hide under his wing. Where is he now? If he were as bad as you claim, how much can he help you in that all-devouring storm? If he is not as good as he should be, you should be better than he and should not try to hide yourself under his shortcomings. Remarks Sinners know these things to be refuges of lies because they do not save people from their sins. Certainly they must see this and know it to be the truth. They resort to these refuges not because they are true, but to use them as an excuse for delay. This is miserable deceit. They are not honest and therefore do not need to think it is strange if they are deceived. They admit that if someone lives like Christ, all will be well and they know that nothing less than this will avail for their safety. Of course, to seek a refuge of lies is to tempt God to destroy you. How can it be otherwise? Remember the test. This one plain and simple principle. Only that which saves from sin is true. All else is false and disastrous. You all have some hope of a happy future, but what is this hope? Is it good or bad? Is it truthful and sure, or is it a refuge of lies? Does your hope sanctify you? Does it make you humble, holy, and prayerful? 
Does your faith purify your heart? Do you have the fruit of the Spirit, such as love, joy, peace, and long-suffering? Do you have daily communion with God? Are you so united to Him that you can say, Truly we have fellowship with the Father? 1 John 1.3 If so, this will be a hiding place indeed, not one that the hail will sweep away, but one that will save the soul. Do you have the life of God in your soul? Does it permeate your heart and diffuse itself over all of your soul? Let nothing less than this avail to satisfy your mind. Listen to Roman Catholics talk about the Virgin Mary and the sacraments and absolution. What are all these things, and a thousand more like them, good for if they do not save from sin? What is the use of running after these things that do not save? Maybe you say that you love to believe that everyone will be saved, that it makes you so happy to believe that. But does it make you holy? Does it renew your heart? This is the only sure test. Maybe you say, I do not believe as you do. I answer that here are great facts. You are in sin. Are you saved from your sin by your system? If so, good. If not, then it is not good. Will your believing it to be one way or the other make it so? Does believing a lie make it the truth? If you were to believe that you could walk on the water or that water could not drown you, and you would leap overboard, would your belief save you? Dying sinner, all those refuges of lies will surely deceive and destroy you. It is time for you to arise and say, I must have the religion of Jesus. If I do not have it, I cannot go where Jesus is. With a lie in my right hand, what have I to hope for? None of you, I hope, have reached that sad state described by the prophet. A deceived heart hath turned him aside, that he cannot deliver his soul, nor say, Is there not a lie in my right hand? Isaiah 44.20 O sinner! There is a refuge for you that is not one of lies. There is a hiding place for you that no waters can reach to overwhelm you. It lies far above their course. Take refuge in Christ. Away with these refuges of lies. Cry out, give me Christ and none besides. Christ and Him only. For what have I to do with lies and delusions? You need to come into such communion with Christ that His power and presence and fullness will flow through your heart fully and freely and will be in you a well of water springing up into everlasting life. John 4, 14.